0: The, the thing which is strange about our country, and you know, if you're looking at our country from outside our country, it looks even stranger, is that we have such immense capacity and so little achievement.
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. Timothy Snyder is Levin Professor of History at Yale University and a world-renowned scholar of authoritarianism. His 2017 book, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, became an international bestseller. It described the telltale signs of authoritarian leaders and suggests how to resist them. His newest book is Our Malady, Lessons in Liberty from a Hospital Diary. It describes how last year, at the age of 50, Snyder nearly died as a result of medical mistreatment. In the book, he discusses America's failed coronavirus response and calls on us to rethink the fundamental connection between health and freedom. Timothy Snyder, welcome to the Vermont Conversation.
0: Glad to be with you.
1: What is our malady that explains why Americans die younger than people in 23 European countries? And today, why the U.S. has the worst coronavirus outcomes in the industrialized world, where Despite having only four percent of the world's population, we have about a quarter of the world's deaths from COVID nineteen.
0: Yeah, so like a lot of things, I, I had my mind around those statistics in the abstract, but they didn't really strike me until I almost died myself, and it was that experience that got me thinking that you know these aren't these aren't just numbers. Um, and this isn't just a system that's wrong. It's also it's also an ethic that's wrong, or it's a morality that's wrong. So, you know, the the, the symptoms you name that we're, we're all too close to dying too much of the time, too many of us are dying for bad reasons all the time. Um, of the 200,000 or so people who died of COVID in this country, the vast majority of them should be alive. There's no reason why American woman who's pregnant would be safer in 40 other countries than she would be in, in in the US. Those are the symptoms and then we can say, okay, what's the system? And the system's commercial medicine. Well, that's that's the I think the systemic problem that our our bodies have become part of the market. You know the mar- market can be a good thing when we're getting objects by way of the market, but when our body becomes part of the of of the market, that means that, What happens to us on a surgical table or in a waiting room or in an ER ends up depending on what makes sense financially for other people who don't care about you and don't care about your health. And so then what's the evil? I mean, the evil I think is not thinking about this in terms of our freedom. I think that's the evil that in the US, we think about freedom as just being for markets or we think about freedom as being able to say the thing we're feeling at one moment or another, but the evil is not thinking that we all have bodies and that none of our other freedoms actually make sense if we don't include those bodies in our our discussions about freedom, Um, that we would all be healthier and freer if we all had access to to, to healthcare. And the the evil is breaking us down, telling white people that they should go it alone and be tough and independent. And by the way, only the, the black people and the immigrants would exploit health care if we if we gave it to them um the evil is the thing which tells us okay if we have better insurance than other people then we're doing okay even though we don't even though we're not if we have better insurance than other people we're still doing badly we're just doing less badly so when i talk about our malady i mean the symptoms that you describe but but i also mean a political evil that's around them which i think we have to be able to name and and resolve
1: and what is that political evil
0: let's let's start with inequality of wealth We're in a country where the thing that we call the American dream hasn't really been true for about 40 years. We're in a country where inequalities of income and wealth have been growing for the past 40 years to the point where the very wealthiest people in this country are no longer really living in the same society as everyone else. And that's a problem because it means that in a pandemic or even in an everyday situation, those people aren't thinking about the condition of the country in general because it's not their condition anymore. But even if we put the very, you know, the very wealthy aside, because of inequality, you know, you might have healthcare X and I have healthcare Y. And let's say your healthcare X is a little better than my healthcare Y, you know that and I know that. And that's poisonous. It's poisonous that if both you and I have the same condition, you think you should go ahead of me because you've got the better healthcare, because you have a little bit more money. And the truth is every American like knows this in their bones, that that's the way that the system works. And that's, that's something that I would call evil because it puts us at each other's throats at precisely at the moment when we all are most vulnerable, which is when, which is when we're sick, when we need help. So that's, that's inequality. Another part of the evil is racism. In order to have decent forms of care for everyone, we have to agree that we all have a right to them. The moment that we say, no, no, we can't have healthcare, for example, because black people will abuse it. The moment we do that, that means not only are we locking the black people out, but we're also locking ourselves out. Um, we're making sure that everybody does worse off. And so that's that's another part of the evil. But for me, like the, the, the fundamental part of the evil is what I tried to suggest before, which is that we are being... We're being fooled, I think, in our discussions of freedom. Um, We've gotten, we, we use the word freedom a lot, but we've been trained to think about freedom in such a narrow way that it ends up making us unfree. Like if I say, you know, freedom and healthcare go together, you can't be free without being healthy. A lot of people's reaction is, wait, what does health have to do with it, you know? But the truth is, if you can't, if you're too weak to talk, I mean, these were like the basic insights I had when I was very sick. If you're too weak to talk you don't have freedom of speech if you're too weak to move you don't have freedom of assembly if you think your life is going to end soon you're not free at all because you're not you don't have any control of the future which is what freedom is is about freedom is about unpredictability and possibility in in the future and so and that's always true if we're not if we're if we're if we're anxious and fearful about being sick or if we are sick We're less free than we would be otherwise. But if you try to tell Americans, look, let's have a bigger idea of freedom, a bigger idea of freedom. Let's be more free. Uh, Many Americans have a tendency to shrink back and say, no, no, that's not for me. I don't deserve that. You know, let's let the market take care of it. For me, that's evil. You know, for me, if this country has a basic idea, it's the idea of freedom and we should be trying to make that idea more expansive rather than less.
1: You're an expert on the rise and fall of authoritarian regimes, and you write that tyrants view malady as an opportunity. Do you think that's true for President Trump? And, and why would he not fear the backlash from 200,000 dead Americans and rising?
0: So I think, if you'll forgive me, I think I can only answer that question by walking through some of the steps of what i think happened with mr trump and the pandemic because if we just say you know september 2020 200,000 deaths trump i think we miss the history of what happened which you know i think has the following stages the first stage is he knows that it's going to be he knows it's going to be deadly you know this is what woodward's book tells us but of course we should have known that without woodward's book of course he knew that it was going to be horrible and deadly but he wants to buy some time. And what does he want to buy some time for? Well, he wants to buy some time for the stock market. So he talks, he, he talks it down. He gives the people who are in the know a chance to dump their stocks and to rearrange their portfolios, which happens, you know, senators sell stocks and the first week, first few weeks of the pandemic our billionaires do extremely well. They are billionaires as a class are much wealthier after the first couple of months of pandemic than they were at the beginning. So in the first stage, is you you lie about it to calm the markets, right? And then in doing that, you you further open up inequality, which means things are going to be worse later on. And then the second stage is. So now you've got the disease because you didn't do anything about it you lied about it you didn't do the basic thing which you should have done which is testing 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 if we tested like south korea you know most americans who died would now be alive but we didn't because we were busy lying so so now you didn't test you lied you got the disease but it's worse in new york city and that's stage two so what do you do you say well there's not going to be a federal policy so every other country in the world has a centralized policy but we're not going to have one we're going to farm it out to the governors and then we're going to blame the governors. And this seems like a politically clever thing to do, if you're, of course, totally heartless, because you can then just say, well, look, these democratic governors in places like Washington and New York, they're failing. So we're going to let those people die, and then we're going to blame the governors, and that's going to be a political victory for us. That's the second stage. And part of that is also race, because while you're doing that, you're gently suggesting to your people As you call them, that maybe it's the black people are getting sick, and maybe it's the brown people are getting sick, and so maybe the rest of us don't have to worry quite so much. And you never say that directly, but you kind of let it be understood. So that's stage two, which is this kind of this politicization and this racialization of the issue. But once you do that, of course, that works for a few days, but um, it then backfires, of course, because the virus isn't listening to what you're saying. The virus is going to spread from the blue states to the red states. You've kind of persuaded people that that they don't really have to wear masks, you know, that 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 these quarantines and these lockdowns aren't really necessary. So then in the third stage, you just have a total disaster because the disease spreads all over the country. Um, you're getting up to very high tens of thousands a day of infections in the in the late summer. And you know, and, and obviously it's not just people in blue states are dying now as people in the red states for the most part who are dying. So you have this general disaster. So where does that leave you? Okay. And so here is where we get to how an authoritarian might use an epidemic. Obviously, if Mr. Trump is just, let's, if Mr. Trump's just a normal democratic politician, he's got a big problem um, because he's lost popularity with this. I mean, you know, letting 200,000 people die for no reason is generally not considered a good move. Um, And he did it, he did it. So he's lost popularity and he understands that. And, you know, as I read his statements anyway, he realizes that he's going to lose to Biden, so he can't win as a Democratic politician. He doesn't think he doesn't think this is not me talking. He doesn't think he can be reelected, but he does want to stay in power. And so you stay in power by some other means than being elected, and that's where we are with the post office, um, with the attorney general, with the new secret police in Portland, Oregon, with the encouragement of the supporters to vote not once but but twice with the enhanced attempts at voter suppression, Um, with the pardoning of Roger Stone, which is meant as a signal to Russia that they should intervene, we're in a situation where the president is trying to create chaos around the election in the hope that he can somehow pull through. So you're right, like on the surface in a democracy, this is bad for Mr. Trump. He should lose and he would, but if you think of him as a character who doesn't care about democracy, which of course he doesn't, and as a character who wants to stay in power and would will be willing to use non-democratic means, then you can start to see how all the anger and all the emotion and all the grief can be turned and twisted in a way to make things very chaotic in the fall.
1: Where do you believe, uh, you know, you chart out in uh, your earlier book on tyranny uh, the steps on the road to authoritarianism? Where do you believe we are and Trump is on that road?
0: Well, okay. Before I answer that, I, I, I'm i just going to say that I hesitate to go into all the metaphors about lines and roads. And, and just because the point of the book is that much more depends on us than we think. You know, so when we think about when do we cross the line or how far along are we on the road? It's a little bit like we're just, you know, we're, we're traveling. And I want to, I want to say that when, you know, when I wrote the book in late 2016 and as we're talking now in the second half of 2020, an awful lot depends upon moves that we still have yet to make. So I mean, I don't need to dodge the question. I just want to like, as a historian and as, as a citizen, I just want to stress that it, nothing's automatic and there's not an inevitability to this yeah yeah so i mean that's i don't want to dodge the gist of your question of course we're much further along i mean when i wrote when i wrote those 20 lessons they were meant to be the things that we should do first right so number one of the 20 was don't obey in advance because that is a if you don't do that one you can't do the other 19. so you gotta you have to do that one if you can secure your own consciousness and 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 have your own idea of what's right and wrong, and not just drift with a new normal. Then you've got a chance to do other things. But I also ordered them in a little bit, as you suggest in the question, according to time. And so, you know, we are we are. I'm afraid towards the end of the book, where I'm saying things like, um, "Be calm when the unthinkable arrives." Right? That's you know, be a patriot, be as courageous as you can. I'm afraid we're in that we're in that zone. The last few lessons of the book, um, where uh, you know physical courage you know the, the mobilizing protesting is what I mean by that just to be clear peaceful protesting um, where that's probably going to be necessary and we're we're, we're already in the zone of, a, of, of the unthinkable I mean the, the things that are happening a few years ago I think for most of us would have been unthinkable they're not unthinkable to me just because I have the you know I have the um, I have the vocational, disability that I spend much of my time in the 1930s, <laughs> but, but for many Americans, I think it would have been unthinkable that we would have a president who created the new secret police, or who would talk about serving, you know, multiple terms in office, or who would plainly say he wasn't going to recognize the election results, and so on and so forth. We're, so we're in that unthinkable range now, and so the question is, when you're in the unthinkable, do you just give up, or do you try to win? You try to push yourself back into a zone where the law is going to function again, and where things can be made, things can be made better. So we're 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 most the way along. I mean that these elections, I mean, these elections and the events around the elections in November, I think, are a tipping point for our country. Um, I think things are not going to be the same. Um, I think things are going to be very different in early 2021, in one direction or another.
1: What would American authoritarianism look like in the the various thing, you know, uh, modes of authoritarianism that you've studied? What do you think it would look like here? Well,
0: we don't have to, I mean, we don't have to speculate about that. There's a, there's a, you know, there's a discussion going on among some of my colleagues where people say, you know, how can you talk about fascism or, um how can you make comparisons with 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 the soviet union how can you make comparisons at all after all america's america and we're special and i don't get that at all i mean i like america is special to me because it's my country and i love it but it's not my, it's not special in the sense that i think it's out of bounds of normal history i don't think americans are better or worse than other people are more or less vulnerable more or less susceptible to um, various kinds of, of political evil so I think you know American authoritarianism. We don't, you know, I start from Germany and Soviet Union and from Eastern Europe because that's what I work on as a historian. But your question is a really good one because American authoritarianism would, of course, look like America, right? Um, American authoritarianism is going to be is going to have is, is, is going to is going to be about um, you know there's going to be some Protestantism in there. Um, there's there's going to be there's going to be a lot of the flag in there um the 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 american authoritarianism is going to have the things that we already have in america but but more right american authoritarianism is going to have anti-black racism in it um because that is that's the essential way that our democracy has been curtailed not just for black people but for white people over over the generations i mean black people directly but also white people indirectly american authoritarianism is going to be about pain because we are a frontier society where the basic lesson of our history is that if you're willing to take risks and suffer, you're gonna get something for it. And now the frontier is closed. Um, now this, now some, even small farming is very hard. Um, even those factory jobs are fewer and far between. Suffering doesn't make as much sense as it used to, but there's still a lot of suffering. Um, one thing which is particular about America, when you compare American authoritarians like Mr. Trump to other authoritarians, other authoritarians are usually pretty happy trying to give their people the welfare state. I mean, they're happy to you know to, to build some roads, to distribute some goods, or at least make a show of doing that. What's special about America, I mean, I think special, is that our, our authoritarianism is gonna deliver the pain. We're gonna make people live shorter lives. We're gonna have more women die in childbirth. We're gonna have more people, if there's, a, if there's a pandemic, you know, by God, we're gonna have the most people die of anyone. That's what we're gonna do. That's what our authoritarianism is gonna look like. Um, and then we're going to tell the authoritarian is going to tell the Americans what the pain means. It's going to be it's going to be an economy of pain. That's I think that's what's special to America is that we've got this suffering built in, and the wizard of American authoritarianism is going to be a wizard who knows how to work magic with that with that suffering. Which is by the way that's that's what, I mean I'm not I'm not speculating now. I think I'm describing.
1: Let's go back to, and if you're just joining us, we're speaking with uh, Timothy Snyder. He's a professor of history at Yale. His latest book is Our Malady, Lessons in Liberty from a Hospital Diary. Um, One of the things you talk about in Our Malady is uh, this issue of scapegoating. So this talk of a China virus, how it may have been, you know, coronavirus was supposedly deliberately unleashed by China, according to Trump. This Scapegoating has a long history, you point out, with authoritarian leaders. To fill us in a little bit on that.
0: Well, d- disease is such a—I mean, disease is such a test of humanity. Um, I mean, Camus wrote a whole book about this. Disease is a test of humanity because we're usually—we're vul- we're, we're usually all vulnerable, um, but we don't like to think that we're all vulnerable, and we're usually just as capable of spreading disease as anyone else but we don't like to think of ourselves as spreading the disease, you know, I mean, all those people who are not wearing masks, who think it's about their freedom, you know, they're not thinking of themselves, they're not thinking of themselves as a body, you know, as a biological unit spreading disease. Who wants to think of themselves like that? But we are, you know, we are, we irreducibly are. And so a a, a virus is a chance, just like health is a chance to think of ourselves as humans. And, you know, that's why I think it's important when we, when we start thinking of health to start thinking about rights, because um, I think the things that are universal about us are the things which should lead us in the direction of talking about rights. But there's another way to go, as you suggest, which is to say, no, no, this is the, 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 the disease doesn't show us that we're all human. It shows us that we are human, but the other people are a little bit less than human because those other people are the ones who brought us the disease and the whole, I mean, the whole history of, of epidemics is full of this. Um, the, you know, when, when, when syphilis was brought back from the new world um, to the old world, then everyone in the old world sort of competed to blame others for it. So, you know, for some, it was the Spanish disease and, and for others, it was, the, it was the French disease. For others, it was the English disease. For the Poles, it was the American disease. Which sounds a little bit weird until you realize they're thinking about the Americas, right? But for the Russians, it was the Polish disease. And for the Ottomans, it was the Christian disease, all of which misses the point that pretty much every, you know, if you have sex, you can get syphilis. And so it's just, it's a human thing. Um, to take, you know, the Black Plague had nothing to do with Jews and Christians. Jews could get sick, Christians could get sick. But in the Black Plague um, in, in medieval Europe, Christians blamed Jews for it, in that sense, made it a Jewish disease and conveniently killed Jews and took things from Jews on, on the rationale that Jews were deliberately spreading it. Um, in the history of the, of, of the modern US, there's the idea um, that African-Americans are more prone to disease. Um, and then in the 20th century in, Germany, there's the, in Nazi Germany, there's the idea that Jews are the source of typhus or Jews are the source of tuberculosis. Therefore, you're, you're justified in putting them in ghettos so that you can understand a, a virus really it, it sharpens um and brings to the fore this question of are we all humans and should we be talking about rights or are some of us more guilty than others biologically and should we instead be separating ourselves from other people and so it's a very important rhetorical move that you make right at the beginning and that's why i talk about you know talking about call it, calling it the wuhan virus or the chinese virus or whatever um, is, you know, I'm sure it's pleasant for people to do this. It seems to push off responsibility, but it makes it much less likely that you're going to start off. It means you're going to taking the first step in the wrong direction instead of the right direction.
1: You write that this crisis, uh, the current moment we're in, is a chance to rethink the possible. What is the positive change that you imagine could come of this moment?
0: I think that's a really, really important question because, you know, we've gotten ourselves it's too many of us, I mean, not all of us, but we've gotten ourselves beaten down into this mental state where we have trouble imagining how things could be better, you know, under, but before Trump, a lot of people kind of took for granted that things were automatically going to get getting better, but they, you know, they weren't for, for many Americans and there's nothing automatic about improvement. And then with Trump, it's very easy to swing all the way in the other direction. I mean, unless you happen to like Trump, but you know, if you don't, you're very likely to be depressed and, and frustrated and distracted and and and, 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 and 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 unable to think about the future, which is a very, I mean, that's an example of Trump's political skill is that if you're his supporter, you're not thinking about the future. You're just thinking about like your next hit of Trump. You're thinking about like the next moment he's gonna make you feel good. And if you're an opponent of Trump, you know, you're just thinking about the next moment he's gonna make you feel bad. And so we're all kind of trapped in the same cycle of this eternal, repetitive present, and no one's thinking about the future, which is a shame for the country, and it's all above all a shame for the children and the next, the next generation. Because um, as things are going, you know, we're, we're, gonna keep having, we're gonna keep having generations with fewer and fewer opportunities. Okay, so let me get to your question. How could it be better? The, the thing which is strange about our country and you know if you're looking at our country from outside our country it looks even stranger is that we have such immense capacity and so little achievement you know we're like we're like the kid who could be the captain of the football team and could get straight a's but for some reason that you can't understand is just lying on the grass at recess you know smoking a dandelion i mean that's that's like and and you know other countries, we I mean, look at us, especially during this pandemic, when for the first time I think ever, at least in the contemporary history, people look at us and pity us. I mean, sincerely pity us, not schadenfreude, like not, they're not happy that we're down, just pity us, but also wonder, I mean, this is a question that foreign journalists ask me all the time. Like, how can you, be, you have so much wealth and you have this amazing elite and this incredible educational system. How could you do that? How could you kill so many people? How can you do, how's that even possible? And so let me, let me try, having said all that, let me try to work up to my answer, which is that um, we've got so much capacity still, that's part of it. And on issues like health, it's if we can just, you know, if we can just get off the grass, you know, and look around, there are models of how to do it better. Um, basically everywhere that has a comparable political and economic system to us, has a far better health system. Um, in that sense, it's easy because they're also cheaper, right? So the first argument in America, as soon as you say the government do something, the next, the answer is, well, that's going to cost a lot of money, you know, as if $700 billion for defense wasn't a lot of money. Um, that's, But in fact, healthcare is way too expensive in the U.S. We pay far more per capita than comparable countries, and we're getting less. So basically off the shelf, you know whether you like Austria, whether you like Denmark, whatever you like. There are alternatives, and we know that they work because people in these countries are living longer than we are. They're living longer, and they're living and they're living healthier. They're living healthier lives. So that's that's the second thing. The third thing is, I think we're at a tipping point. I really do. I don't. I. I. I it can't. You know, to say that it can't go on like this is is I think kind of an understatement. Um, we are, you know, we we, we could get things to get much worse than they are, and they might. But um, if Mr. Trump does leave office, I think things then will change substantially. Um, I think, ironically, Mr. Biden will have to, if he becomes president, will have to be the person who um, does a redo of the 21st century. <laughs> you know, where 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 you think of like the two terms where he was uh, vice president as a first try but if he's president and he's got democratic majorities that is he can do things i think ironically you know he will be the person who presides over a second try at the 21st century where it's just not going to be enough after this i mean if he's president by the time he's president three hundred thousand of us are going to are going to died of this um you know we're going to be in such a worse position compared to other countries I, I, in, and not just in health right in so many other areas i think the argument for you know a third a third reconstruction or a green recovery or or a green new deal is gonna be there. It's gonna be it's gonna be at his fingertips. And I think so that's the that's the third reason why I think it's possible is that I think we have to tip one way or the other. I don't think we can just bumble along any longer.
1: Okay. Well Timothy Snyder, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont conversation.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad I could do it.
1: Timothy Snyder is the Levin Professor of History at Yale University. He's the author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, and his latest book is Our Malady, Lessons in Liberty from a Hospital Diary. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.